This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Where is everyone? This is episode 66, the 13th part of the history of 100 milers. In this episode, I will tell the story of Gordy Ainsley's iconic 1974 100-mile run on the Western States Trail and help you understand its proper place in history. I will also tell the forgotten story of 53 others who covered the same trail on foot just one week after Gordy did. What? Yes, another Western States history story that was never mentioned in the carefully crafted origin story. Not cool, really. And now a word from our sponsors. Guess what? I released another book that I think you will really enjoy. What? Grand Canyon Rim-to-Rim History. It is a must-read for anyone who has run rim-to-rim or plans to in the Grand Canyon. It presents a 130-year history of the rim-to-rim hikers, runners, trails, bridges, Phantom Ranch, and other things you will see on your run, packed with more than 400 photos. You will read about the plane that landed near Indian Garden. I'm sorry, what? The man who rode his bike across the canyon, and dozens of early experiences crossing the canyon during the early days. I scoured through thousands of old newspaper articles to write this book. Get Grand Canyon Rim-to-Rim History on Amazon. Will do. Nineteen seventy-four is the year when most ultra runners, unfortunately, were told one hundred-mile ultra running history started. Hopefully, the previous twelve episodes, totaling more than six hours of pre-1974 one-hundred-mile history, has set the record straight. During 1974, several one-hundred-mile and twenty-four-hour races were held across the globe, in South Africa, Italy, and the United States. Some solo 100-mile runs also popped up in Canada. But the most significant run, which was mostly unnoticed at the time, was performed by Gordy Ainsley in the rugged, hot mountains in California. Previous to that, many sub-24-hour 100-mile solo runs had been accomplished every year on roads, tracks, and trails. But Gordy's run did not get much attention until several years later when it became an icon for running 100 miles in the mountains, the symbol for Western States 100, founded in 1977. His run must be mentioned, examined, and put into its proper historic context, peeling away the decades of marketing hype and myths that grew out of it. Gordon Ainsley was born in Auburn, California in 1947. Ainsley grew up going by the name of Harry. He was the son of Frank and Bertha Ainsley. Frank served in the Korean and Vietnam Wars in the Air Force. Things didn't work out between them and they filed for divorce one month before Gordy was born. He was then raised by his mother, a nurse, and his Norwegian-born grandmother. His father, Frank, left the home, quickly remarried, and eventually settled in Florida, 
where he raced stock cars and worked in a sheriff's office as a maintenance supervisor over patrol cars. Gordy spent his childhood years in Nevada City, California, about 30 miles north of Auburn. He recalled his first long run. One day when I was in the second grade, I came out on the playground with a bag lunch that Grandma had packed for me, and I just couldn't see anybody who would have lunch with me. I panicked, and I just felt like I couldn't breathe, and I just dropped my lunch and ran home for lunch. On another day, he missed the bus for school and didn't want to admit to his mother that he again missed it, so he just ran several miles to the school. He explained, I came in a little late. The teacher knew where I lived. She asked, Why are you late? I said, I missed the bus, so I ran to school. She was so impressed that she didn't punish him. By the age of 14, he started to get into trouble with the law, so his mother decided it was time to move out of town back to the country. They moved back closer to Auburn on a small farm near the hilly rural community of Meadow Vista. In junior high, his gym teacher treated P.E. like a military boot camp with lots of push-ups. I'd goof off and he'd make me run. I made sure I wore a real pained expression whenever he could see me. Actually, I was having a good time. At Colfax High School, Ainsley would have to run a lap before P.E. class and he would race with a friend each day. His teacher noticed and recruited him to join the track team. He was also active in wrestling. One article reported, Without the support of a father, Ainsley had to find motivation from within himself. He remembers losing a wrestling match to a teammate and working endless hours to strengthen himself and defeat his opponent the next time they met. Ainsley said, Until then, I had always tried to be just good enough. After that, I decided I would strive to be excellent. Ainsley went to Sierra College in Rockland, California, in the Sacramento suburbs. As a freshman in 1965, he was a strong but average athlete on the cross-country team. For example, in 1965, he placed 89th among 217 at the state meet. He was also on the college wrestling team and did very well in the heavyweight class, 200 pounds and above. But perhaps Ainsley's greatest recognition in college was winning the 1967 Sierra College Pancake Tournament. Trishla Faber is leaning heavily on the syrup. He's leaning heavily on the syrup. I'm not sure if that's the strategy. I think he might be too over syrupy, too soon in the contest. He consumed 30 pancakes, breaking his record of 24 and a half at the beginning of the competition. Ainsley took advantage of all the rules which allowed anything inside the mouth to be counted as consumed, while pancakes still outside were disallowed. In 1968, Ainsley served in the military. In July 1968, he volunteered for a 21-day high-altitude testing program conducted at Fort Sam Houston in Texas and at Pikes Peak in Colorado. He took part in a series of diet and exercise tests as part of the program. In 1969, Ainsley was back in California and started to attend the University of California, Santa Barbara. In 1971, at the age of 23, while going to UC Santa Barbara, Ainsley bought a horse named Rebel. One day, he read a notice on a bulletin board about an endurance horse race, the Western States Trail Ride, or Tevis Cup, which was held just miles from his home. He had never heard about it before, but wanted to give it a try. 
It was a 100-mile horse race from Squaw Valley to Auburn, California. This is the granddaddy of all endurance rides. Ainsley entered and rode on his eight-year-old horse, Rebel. He was disadvantaged because of his larger frame and weight and had to run many miles ahead or behind the horse to take the weight off and to make faster progress. He finished in great pain at the fairground stadium in Auburn with a time of 19 hours, 37 minutes. The next year, 1972, Ainsley rode Rebel again and witnessed the soldiers from Fort Riley, Kansas, who became the first to cover the Western States Trail on foot during the event. See episode 65. He and Rebel finished in 19 hours, 26 minutes, nearly seven hours behind the winner. The soldiers finished during that same hour before sunrise. Ainsley dropped out of college and worked in logging tree removal. He didn't know what he wanted to do in life and felt depressed. He visited his old high school and started running long-distance road races with the school's math and music teacher. He also started to run on trails. In 1973, Ainsley, knowing that the seven soldiers had been able to cover the Western States Trail on foot, went to another endurance ride event, a 50-miler, to attempt to run it on a $10 bet. It was the Castle Rock 50-mile ride in Big Basin Redwood State Park. He successfully ran the 50-mile course in about nine hours, finishing in the middle of the pack of riders who had two mandatory one-hour stops. On July 14, 1973, Ainsley rode the Western States Trail Ride for the third year, but only made it to Robinson Flat, about mile 30, which took him seven hours. His horse, Old Rattlenose, was lame and couldn't continue, so he dropped out of the race. He never replaced that horse and thus didn't have one for the next year's race. In 1974, with both his riding and running skills, Ainsley won a 42-mile Levi ride-and-tie race at Klamath Falls, Oregon, with his friend Jim Larimer. For ride-and-ties, two runners-slash-riders and one horse race to reach a finish line together. One person rides ahead, ties off the horse so it can eat and rest, and then runs ahead. The other runner catches up, rides the horse, and continues the leapfrogging to the finish. We've got teams of two humans with one horse. The people will alternately run and ride their horse, either over a 12-mile trail or a 25-mile trail. Uh, it's a conversion to sport of a historic means of transportation. It goes back to the 17th century. It, it, it'll be a mass start, a shotgun start. We'll line the teams up in a line and send them off all together, runners and riders. It's a cavalry charge followed by the infantry. It took very fit runners and riders to win these competitions. It was his kind of race to excel in. A few weeks later, with that success at the ride and tie, Ainsley felt confident that he could run western states without a horse. His fellow endurance riders had been encouraging him to give it a try. He wanted to cover it much faster than the soldiers did two years earlier and beat the 24-hour cutoff time established for the riders and horses. Many were skeptical that he could pull it off. On August 3, 1974, on race day, Ainsley got up early, wanting to get a 10-minute head start on all the horses. With no fanfare, he walked up to the start that was managed by Ralph and Betty Deaver. Ainsley recalled, They were sitting around with a gas lantern, and I said, Well, I guess I'm going to be going. And they said, Well, good luck, Gordy. And I just disappeared off into the darkness. 
It was like nobody knew it was happening. Ainsley proved his doubters wrong and indeed finished. Always a showman, he entered the stadium, did a somersault before the finish line, and crossed with a time of 23 hours, 42 minutes. See episode 16 for details of his historic run. Ainsley became the eighth person to cover the course on foot, but the first to break 24 hours. His accomplishment didn't get much attention at the time, just a paragraph or two in a couple newspapers, and a short mention by Paul Harvey on his radio show. Paul Harvey, good day. Two years earlier, the soldiers had received multiple full pages of photos and stories in the newspaper about their historic first finish. But Ainsley's fame would arrive several years later with some crafty marketing. In later years, others would try to run the course too, but it wasn't until 1977 that Wendell Roby, president of the Western States Trail Foundation, finally decided to organize the Western States Endurance Run. Ainsley was not the founder of the Western States Endurance Run. Wendell Roby was. Ainsley was along for the ride. And after that, Wendell came up to me and, and said what I was waiting for, you know. And he comes up to me and goes, Gordy, let's make this a yearly event. And I said, with publicity and all that? And he said, with publicity and all that. For 1977 and 1978, the marketing effort for Western states got to work to promote the new race. The board strategically decided to, quote, prop up Ainsley's story of his run and make him into the icon of the emerging race. Ainsley loved the attention. They also purposely decided to bury the 1972 story of the soldiers. Ainsley was proclaimed in marketing material and news stories as the first to cover the 100-mile course on foot. But there was another problem that later surfaced. The course was actually only 89 miles, far off any acceptable distance for a 100-miler. The road's not long enough for me. La, 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 la. Ainsley and the early runners did not come close to running 100 miles in 24 hours. More miles were added in 1980 to make it 93 and a half miles. It was not until 1985 that the course was extended to 100 miles. The Western State's origin story continued to be enhanced by Ainsley and the 1978 race organizers, who made overreaching historic claims. These people were horse endurance riders, not ultra runners. They were focused on California, knew nothing about the history of ultra running, and what was going on with 100 milers across the world. They did not know about the nearly 1,000 athletes who had already covered 100 miles on foot in less than 24 hours on tracks, roads, and trails before Ainsley's run. 1,000. Yes, historic accuracy was not their focus. Marketing was. There's a quote usually attributed to the writer Mark Twain that goes, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. The 1978 Western States Board of Governors thought that their race was the first 100-miler and started to make that false claim. The focus of these organizers was to fulfill Wendell Roby's dream to make Auburn, California, quote, the endurance capital of the world. Auburn holds the undisputed and internationally acclaimed title of endurance capital of the world, 
Despite their overreaching claims, their efforts were amazing and would bring Western States 100 into the world spotlight. Dozens of 100-milers would pattern their races after Western States. The revisionist 100-mile ultra-running history claims would continue to grow through the years. Ainsley, who was only a mid-pack runner, who never organized any race, was proclaimed by some as being, quote, the godfather of the sport, ignoring the true modern-era contributions by Ted Corbett in New York. Ainsley was also called, quote, the man who invented trail ultra-running, a claim that Ainsley still embraces on his personal website and on podcasts. Hey, Gordy, you know, when we go out and tell our friends we're going to go enter this 100-mile race, when you did it, nobody had ever done it before. What were you thinking? And thank you for returning to listen to the continuation of my interview with the father of ultra-trail running, Dr. Gordy Ainsley, a chiropractor in Auburn, California. Hopefully the preceding 12 parts of the 100-mile history has preserved the true rich history of the 100-mile sport that early Western states marketing ignored, or more likely, just did not know about. In 1974, another group covered the Western States Trail on foot, yet another event that was ignored in the curated history for Western States. Before Ainsley planned to run, another group got the idea of covering the Western States Trail on foot in 1974. In July 1974, the Lung Association of Sacramento Immigrant Trails announced a hiking event called Sierra Trek for Life and Breath to backpack from Squaw Valley to Auburn, California, 100 miles. It would be held on the week after the Western States Trail Ride. This further built on the Western States on Foot idea that originated in 1972 by the Fort Riley soldiers. Ruth Clark, a volunteer organizer for the event, said, The trek will provide a unique opportunity for those representing Placer County to combine recreation and community service. Between 50 and 75 participants were encouraged to sign up. Participants needed to have their own backpacking gear, but would be provided food along the way. Backpackers young and old, male and female, signed up for the trek. A week before Ainsley's run, Eleanor Maxalka, an elementary teacher from Ainsley's hometown of Meadow Vista, was highlighted in the Auburn newspaper seeking pledges for her planned 100-mile trek. There is just no way that Ainsley can be given exclusive credit for the idea of covering the Western States Trail on foot. 56 backpackers started on August 10, 1974 from Squaw Valley and 53 completed the eight-day march. Blisters, sore feet, and tired muscles were numerous among the finishers who ranged in ages from 13 to 71. After the very long hike, a big luncheon for the group was held at the Auburn Fairgrounds. The backpackers said that they had a great time and planned to have reunions to commemorate their historic hike. Despite this widely published accomplishment, it went ignored by the original Western States Run Board, who claimed that Ainsley was the first and only to have covered the trail on foot, and that he deserved all the credit. The trek went on to be held as an annual event for the next 11 years. Although the route changed somewhat each year, during the later years, it went between Lake Tahoe and Yosemite. Ainsley wasn't alone. Others were making 100-mile journey runs. 
Felipe Ladalupe, age 55, a retired chief warrant officer with the Canadian Armed Forces, started a 100-mile run on May 24, 1974, at 2 p.m. at Downsview Air Base in Toronto, Canada. He had been running for the past 15 years and explained, One day I decided that if I could spend four hours standing at the bar, I could try using those same legs in a way that would beat those hangovers. So I quit drinking and began a daily walking jogging routine. Now, if I don't jog at least 10 miles a day, I don't feel really good. He made excellent progress. In 1972, he walked 300 miles in 77 hours, 34 minutes, on a quarter-mile track. In 1974, Latalipe said he was doing a 100-mile run, quote, to prove to other Canadians my age that it was possible to stay in shape. Along the way, every two hours he was tested for heart and lung strain. Major Kurt Allen said, We were looking for irregularities in the heartbeats, but nothing happened. He just kept going. He finished in 20 hours and then fell asleep. On September 28, 1974, Clyde McRae, a skiing coach from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, started a 100-mile attempt at Empire Stadium in Vancouver, Canada. He was making the run to raise money for an orphan's fund sponsored by a local radio station. In 1973, McRae had hiked 3,764 miles across Canada from Halifax to Vancouver in 96 days, thought to be the fastest Trans-Canada walk of that time. His 100-mile run started at 6 p.m., and he was supported by two rotating crews, including some medical and fitness experts. He went through four different pairs of shoes, starting with size 11 and working up with the swelling. He finished in 18 hours, 8 minutes, and 20 seconds, which was thought to be a Canadian 100-mile record. One hundred mile races were still being held. The Camellia 100 was again held in Rockland, California, just 21 miles from Ainsley's home on March 9, 1974. The field appeared stronger and the weather was more favorable than in any previous year. Yet for the first time, the race triumphed over all comers. No one managed to finish. Dave Chatterton, 18, proved the most tenacious of all entrants passing 50 miles in 8 hours 40 minutes, and continued on until 65 miles in a time of 14 hours 3 minutes. He spent part of his time cooking and handing out refreshments while adding his final 15 miles. The 1975 edition of the Camellia 100 went better with 14 starters. It was held on a 7 8 mile loop north of the Cal Expo main gates in Sacramento. Heavy rain fell during the first five hours, but two finished. Bill McRae, 25, of Norton Air Force Base, with 15 hours, 13 minutes, and Don Choi, 26, a mailman from San Francisco, finished his first 100-miler with 18 hours, 20 minutes. In the five-year history of this 100-miler, there were a total of 11 finishers. Carmelo Andreata was born in 1923 in the small mountain village of Batero, Italy. He had always enjoyed adventure, thrills, and challenges. At a young age, he became a paratrooper, making his first jump at age 19. During his life, he made 185 jumps. 
After World War II, he became a ski instructor and mountain guide, doing stunts in four mountain movie pictures. But his fame came when he became a pioneer Italian ultra-runner in 1974-1977. On October 12, 1974, at the age of 51, he broke the Italian 24-hour record, reaching 147.7 miles on a track in Trento. He had trained barefoot, even in the snow and often during the night. Late in life, he spent about 10 months a year in a Sardinian village, serving a community of abandoned and disabled children. Among all his running awards on his wall was an honored plaque bearing the word grandfather given to him by the children of the village. On April 18, 2020, Carmelo Andriata died at the age of 97 due to coronavirus, COVID-19. On August 16, 1975, a 100-mile race was competed on a track at Queensboro Community College in Queens, New York. This was the first 100-miler put on by the ultra-running friendly and forward-thinking New York Roadrunners Club. This event was legendary Park Barner's first 100-mile race. He was from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and started running ultras at the age of 27 in 1971. By 1974, Barner was no longer a newcomer and was becoming the best ultra-runner in America. The Harrisburg Area Roadrunners Club newsletter wrote, What Park has done is merely to shatter the existing standards of what the human body is physiologically capable of doing. He is establishing himself as a living legend in the ultra-distance events. For more about Barner, see episode 51. By 1975, Barner had run more than 30,000 miles and had run 5,400 miles the past year. He had been receiving some strange criticism because he trained so much. It rankled Barner, so he used a new approach to combat the criticism. He said, I just wanted to prove they were wrong. For the first eight months of 1975, he averaged only seven miles of light running per day. That was his training for his first 100-miler. The venue for the 1975 Queensboro 100-miler was on the college quarter-mile track. There were only seven starters, and all but Barner dropped along the way. Barner reached 50 miles in 6 hours 32 minutes, but without any competition, he faded during the second half of the race. He won with a time of 13 hours 40 minutes for a lifetime best. It was just 7 minutes slower than Ted Corbett's 13 hours 33 minute track 100 mile American record set in 1969 in England. See episode 63. Barner tried to break Corbett's record the next year at the same event and was leading at mile 67 when he injured his hip. The temperatures were in the 90s so he decided to drop out. It appears that there were no finishers that year. At times, runners trying to run 100 miles got in way over their heads. Cecil Garner, age 50, from Leesburg, Florida, was a manager of a shoe store. In 1975, he started running for a cause. Back in 1968, he had lost a son, Richard, to cancer, and nine months later, a second son, Ronald, was killed in the Vietnam War. He said, It was an excruciating experience to watch Richard suffering. Then Ronald was killed while serving with the U.S. Marines. Six others died with him. They didn't know what had hit them, 
it was life's bitterest pill. Garner announced that he had started to run 15 miles per day before work to get into shape for a one-man long-distance run to raise money for the American Cancer Society. First, he did a 22-mile run that successfully raised money and awareness. He said, My whole family thinks I've gone bananas. He tried to run 42 miles from Orlando to Howie in the Hills. He came up 2.7 miles short and said, I wanted to make it, but I just couldn't. I know one thing, it will be a long time before I pull a stunt like this again. Garner had to eat his words. When on November 29, 1975, he started an attempt to run 100 miles. He was hesitant and said, This is an attempt. I'm not saying I'm going to make it, but with the condition I'm in, I feel full of confidence. My mental attitude is right and my determination has never been better. He had learned from his mistakes on his last run when he drank only water. He learned all about replacing electrolytes. He naively had hopes to reach 100 miles in 19 and a half hours. Garner started out at night for his planned run from Tampa. Three friends followed him in the camper. But after running only 15 miles in 2 hours 15 minutes, he quit because of tooth pain and explained, The night air hit me and a sore tooth like a nail through me. Of course, I'm disappointed that I didn't make it. I had worked before several months before I could even attempt it. Five months later, Garner was at it again, this time trying to break an obscure Florida Guinness World Record of running 122 miles in 22 hours 27 minutes. Local McDonald's restaurants outlets helped sponsor him. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, but I've run 2,500 miles since November 1974 and I just want to see if I can put it all together. He felt ready, running about 9 miles a day, and had been taking 18 vitamins per day. The Cancer Society provided a crew vehicle and a doctor to go along. His journey began in the afternoon on May 29, 1976. He ran the first 12 miles in bad heat, not stopping for any fluids. But after 24 miles, he started to have stomach pains and then refused to drink any more electrolyte fluids. His crew knew that was a bad sign, the beginning of the end. His pace slowed to a snail's pace and he again quit, this time after 9 hours reaching only 30 miles. $700 was raised. His sponsors were grateful, but very alarmed that Garner was doing harm to himself. That was the last of his 100-mile attempts. Stay tuned for more 100-mile history. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.